Hello, hello. We're going to be here for part two of the Hongrengan story. Again, drawing pretty heavily from a book titled Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen R. Platt. Excellent book. I recommend you buy a copy of it and read it. It's pretty good. Uh, you could probably borrow it from me at some point, too, if we ever get back here face to face. Okay, so now we're up to 1847. Um, at that time, there were about 2,000 followers of the society. Remember, this was called the Society of God Worshippers, which sounds oversimplified in English, but in Chinese, this was a new thing. People didn't necessarily worship a god. They worshipped their ancestors. They revered and respected Confucius. Maybe they were Buddhist. Um, so this was kind of a new idea to have like one god that you were believing in. So about 2,000 followers in 1847, primarily Hakka population people. Remember, this is an ethnic minority who tended to travel around. The word Hakka means guest people. They didn't really belong in Han society. They were kind of treated as outsiders. Um, one of the reasons was Han society you stuck as a family group, you know, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, grandma, grandpa, maybe. And then you had a house and you had neighbors and all that kind of stuff. The Hakka would build like these circular buildings. You saw them on the Khan Academy video. Um, where they would all kind of communally take care of each other and share things. Sometimes there's a communal kitchen where they all cook together and the whole you know, building would come eat dinner together or whatever. It was different, and they didn't necessarily fit into society for that reason. So most of that, the followers of the society are Hakka. Emboldened by their faith and their numbers, they began smashing Buddhist idols and temples. And this raised suspicion with the authorities. In a small enough village, you know, you get a couple hundred guys that belong to the society. They could go just rough the place up and destroy the Confucius tablets, smash them, break them, burn them, whatever. Same thing with the Buddhist statues. By 1849, so within two years of that, independent congregations were having fits, doing wild things like flopping around on the ground, saying they were speaking in tongues and crazy stuff like that. Um, they looked to Hong Xiuquan to tell them, which of their channeled words came from God and which things they said came from the devil. So they'd go into this trance and they'd rattle off random stuff and then they would ask Hong Chiltran to interpret it for them. Um, there was a pestilence, which is a disease, that ravaged the province in 1850. So three years after these groups were forming. And when word spread that sick people could be healed just by praying to Hong Chiltran's God, the number of people in the society just exploded. There were tons of them. Uh, multitudes joined the society. And after the disease had passed, they gave credit for the ending of that pandemic. They gave that credit to Hong Xiuquan's religion. Um, but none of this was enough to form an army. This was just a very successful religious movement. What tipped the scales was an outburst of violence between Hakka and native settlers in Guangxi, native being probably Han Chinese. The Hakkas, as latecomers, had to scrabble for land and water rights, and the more long-standing local families kind of scorned them and mocked them as like gypsy-type people that were wandering and didn't have a permanent home. A small-scale war broke out between a handful of Hakka and the native villages in the autumn of 1850, the natives burned down the homes of the Hakkas to try to get them to leave. And the Hakkas turned to the Society of God Worshippers for protection and support. The local government was not protecting them, so where did they go? They went to their church for protection. 
Local authorities, already suspicious of the religious sect, now began to view it as a harbor or a safe place for troublemakers. But according to Hong Rangan, Hong Xiuquan had foreseen all of this and waited patiently for it to start to happen. As the Hakka versus native violence spread, Qing officials who blamed the trouble on the Hakkas sent a group of soldiers to round up Hong Xiuquan and Feng Yunshan. Feng Yunshan was his first convert, remember him and, well, second convert, him and Hong Rangan. Getting wind of the plan, a nearby congregation of God worshippers armed themselves with swords and spears and marched over land to save their leader. They easily routed the outnumbered imperial soldiers, and Hong Xiuquan sent out word calling for all of the god worshippers from across the entire district to gather in one place for the first time and prepare for the next stage of their movement. Many had already sold their houses and land in preparation for the day when this would happen, so over the following days, they assembled and found that they now numbered in the tens of thousands. With little effort, they took possession of a small town, their first military victory. So they went very quickly from a church to a church that would go in and tear down the other churches to a church that had swords and spears who would protect their leader to a small informal army who was now conquering small towns. Imperial soldiers laid siege on this first small town that they had conquered. Um, they fired on the god worshippers from outside with guns, but they managed to slip out in the middle of the night. The god worshippers did. They left. And in the morning, the imperial troops fell into the town, and it was basically empty. The troops left to pursue them, um, and they were attacked in the woods. The god worshippers had hidden throughout the bushes in the woods, and as the imperial soldiers came through, they were attacked. People jump out of nowhere. And so the imperial soldiers kind of freaked out, turned around, left, and went back to the town that the god worshippers had conquered and punished the local town and killed a bunch of those people out of just rage and anger. That didn't help support for the Qing, right? On January 11th, 1851, Hong Xiu declared it as the founding of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom with himself as the new emperor or heavenly king of China. Feng Yunshan and three other lieutenants were appointed kings of the four directions, so north, south, east, west, right? Um, through 1851-1852, the Taiping army, <clears throat> they fought its way into the north. And as they went, they would kind of absorb the poor, the disenfranchised, criminals, anybody who was afraid or hated the Qing dynasty, um, anybody who would convert to their version of Christianity, to this Taiping movement, um, anybody who would commit themselves to the destruction of Confucianism, and above all else, anybody who would swear to help overthrow the Manchu. These people just kind of got absorbed into the Taiping movement. So they're going from originally a couple thousand to tens of thousands, that number starting to swell. By the time they moved northward far enough to reach the Yangtze River, cutting through central China in January 1853, there were half a million of them though Feng Yunshan and untold numbers of others had died along the way. Um, but Hong Rangan knew of this only through hearsay. He hadn't been there for this. So he was telling the missionaries about it, but these were just rumors he had heard from other Chinese people. Um, 
Hong Ren Gan had been too late to the first assembly point, and he arrived in the town after the god worshippers had already left in the night. He tried to follow them, but all he ever came all he ever came across was groups of imperial Qing patrols hunting for the Taiping, and so he was not able to catch up to the Taiping. And so this is when he went into disguise, went into hiding, and he was chased by Qing army officials. Um, The Qing agents even went to his hometown, and they burned the entire village to the ground. He was kidnapped by a guy who was after the bounty, because the Qing government had put a bounty on his head, Um, but he managed to escape. And then he made his way into Hong Kong, Seeking asylum, which is when you get protection from another country because of things that happened in your own country. And that's where he met the Swedish missionary Hamburg that we talked about last time. Okay, now remember back to Theodore Hamburg, who we talked about, the Swedish missionary. He would only do one thing in his life that ever really captured the attention of the world beyond his small circle of friends. And that was that he translated Holmringan's account into English and published it. He did so because it had convinced him of what was, to him, the most marvelous, the most improbable, and amazing fact of the rebellion, namely that the rebels who had risen up from the heart of China to overthrow the Manchus were actually Christians. His book came out first in Hong Kong and Shanghai as the title here, The Visions of Hong Xiuquan, then was printed in London as The Chinese Rebel Chief. That was the title of the book, The Chinese Rebel Chief. It was nothing less than propaganda, seeking to convince the readers of the English-speaking world that the Taiping rebels worshipped the same god that they did. It was, furthermore, an attempt to draw foreign support towards the rebels by awakening, in Hamburg's words, a more lively and permanent sympathy on behalf of the millions of Chinese, by which he did not, of course, mean the people of China who remained loyal to the Jing. Um, He was referring to the Chinese who were supporting the Taiping. Finally, Hamburg published the book to raise money for the cause, of which he had, through his friendship with Hongrengan, become a clear supporter. He wrote at the end of the volume, quote, It may add to the satisfaction of the readers to know that while they are promoting the sale of the book, they are also relieving the distress of many who form the subjects of its pages. Close quote. So the money made on the book was sent towards typing rebels, rebels to help support them. In May 1854, as he finished work on the book, Hamburg gave Hongrengan and two friends money to travel to Shanghai in the hope that they could make their way up the Yangtze River across the Qing cordons to rejoin the Taiping movement in Nanjing. He loaded Hongrengan down with gifts. There was a range of Chinese books, authorized Bible translations compiled by foreign missionaries, along with translated works of history, and several maps showing the world, China, and the Holy Land, Jerusalem, right? Um, Hamburg also gave him the standard tokens of the European trying to impress a Chinese audience. He sent a telescope, a thermometer, a compass, even though the Chinese had invented compasses, and he hoped that Hongrengan would be the European missionary's conduit to the Taiping. He was really hoping that Hongrengan would hook him up with Hong Xiuquan so he could kind of be the missionary dude advisor to this movement. Um, Hamburg's real hope was that once they got to Nanjing, he himself could follow them and join the movement as a religious teacher. Hongrengan had mentioned on occasion how much he would like to have Hamburg with him in the heavenly capital, but Hamburg didn't want to be presumptuous 
and invite himself. Instead, he insisted that he wouldn't try to join the Taiping unless they gave him a formal invitation. So he didn't go with Hong Rangan. The journey, however, was a failure. Hong Rangan had a falling out with his missionary host in Shanghai. They found an opium pipe in his room, and he claimed that a visiting friend had left it there. They didn't believe him. At any rate, they didn't have means or money or supplies to help him get to Nanjing anyway to meet up with the, the Taiping. So the Chinese portion of the city was in rebellion at the time. They were controlled by a secret society, and the secret society was like a brotherhood. It was a group that was not the Society of God Worshippers, but they were very sympathetic to the Taiping. And so they were kind of starting to control Shanghai. So Hong Rangan went to them and they didn't believe that he was actually Hong Xiuquan's cousin, so they wouldn't help him. So he spent a few months kind of drifting in Shanghai, not sure what to do. So he would like drop into these missionary schools and he would study about math or astronomy or history or whatever. And then he would, you know, go wander around and see if he could somehow get up to join the Taiping. He couldn't get through the Qing-controlled territory, though, because they knew who he was. They knew why he would be going to Nanjing to meet up with the Qing. So he was still kind of in hiding. Um, finally, he gave up. He hops on a boat, and he heads back to Hong Kong. His Swedish friend, though, um, Theodore Hamburg, he wasn't there to greet him when he got back to Hong Kong. Because a few days after Hong Rangan's departure for Shanghai, um, Hamburg had caught up with, uh, they call it miasma of the colony. It was probably malaria um, initially that turned to dysentery, and he died at the age of 35. Okay, so Hong Rangan thought when he got back to Hong Kong that this would probably be a short-term temporary thing, get some help from his friend Theodore Hamburg, and then he would head back and meet up with the Taiping. Um, but it turned out to be a very long-term, almost permanent relocation to Hong Kong. Um, when he returned back to Hong Kong, his friend was dead, but he found a job with the London Missionary Society. And he became a well-trusted, um, well-known person in the society. He worked as an assistant to the preachers that were running that work. Um, he became known for his friendly personality, um, quick wit, intelligent, nice guy that just everybody liked to deal with. He, let's see, his supervisor and closest collaborator for the following years was the stodgy, mutton-chopped Scottish missionary named James Legg, who was starting a project of making an English translation of the entire Confucian canon. This was the same Confucian text that they had based the civil service exams on up in China. He was trying to make an English version of that. So this James Legg and Hong Rangan, they worked closely together. Um, they'd often go out and preach together. And if you remember back to when um, Hong Rangan was first in Hong Kong, people thought that they were teaching him about Christianity, but he said he was teaching them about Hong Xiuquan's Taiping version of Christianity. This time was very different. James Legg would teach people in Cantonese that he had just learned and was trying to teach. And then Hong Rangan would turn around and teach the same lesson or same message in Hakka to the Hakka people. And it was very different because this time Hong Rangan was totally just going along with what the local missionaries were doing. Now this James Legg, he was known for not praising anybody who was Chinese, but he said Hong Rangan was, quote, the most genial and versatile Chinese I've ever known. Um, 
James Legg's daughter said that her curmudgeonly father felt for Homer and Gone, quote, a special affection and a warmth of admiration such as he gave to hardly any other Chinaman. There was something about Hong Rangan's personality, his humility mixed with intelligence that caught the attention of people that worked with him, and they described him as a man of exceptional ability and fine character. He had a clear and intelligent acquaintance with Christian truth. Everybody that knew him said good things about him. Although later, after this whole story unfolds, people in Hong Kong would instead compare him to a wolf in sheep's clothing, because once it people realized how kind of nuts the typing were. They thought that maybe this was all just a show that Hong Rangan had put on to get support or get money or get help or something like that. Okay. One more thought here. The population in Hong Kong began to change after the fall of Nanjing. Remember Nanjing was that big connection to the riverways, right? When the Mongolians came in and conquered China, they took Nanjing and that's when it was over. They had control of the whole country. Well, the Taiping took Nanjing, right? But not Beijing. But they took Nanjing. Um, when that happened, the Manchu government set a huge campaign in order that would go down, hunt down, and execute all the followers of the Taiping movement that they could find. And so this sent refugees like crazy fleeing to British colonies in Hong Kong for protection and safety. Um, Qing officers... They couldn't touch the Taiping-controlled regions around Nanjing because the Taiping were too strong. But in other parts of China that were still under Qing control, they were purging sympathizers, and it was merciless. Um, the government wouldn't just target the actual sympathizers of Taiping, but they would also target their relatives. There were instances of burning down entire villages because somebody that lived there had joined the Taiping, um, even totally innocent people. They would root out where they said the furthest branch of the family tree of the Taiping supporters. This got so bad that one general in Canton, um, just 100 miles from Hong Kong, he led a brutal response. Um, they did this investigation. They sent agents around to capture anybody they thought would be a Taiping supporter. They rounded up 75,000 people, and most of which were executed. It was just an absolutely horrible situation. We won't go into all the details, but the general of Canton with this um, series of executions and the rounding up of people got really, really out of hand. Um, thousands and thousands of people at a time. There were stories that there were places where um, you couldn't walk because there, there was blood flowing through the streets and stuff like that. It was just absolutely terrible. This is what people were fleeing from. Your chances of living through this were very, very poor unless you would basically join the Qing and swear to help them do the same thing to other people. So this was really rough. Um, there, there are even stories that the general, in order to make sure that his men weren't just making up the numbers, would ask them to send the heads of the executed people back. Um, but there were so many that the wagons and carts that were being used to haul them back were breaking under the weight and so they started sending ears instead of heads. Um, horrible stuff, horrible, horrible stuff. And so this violence just got worse and worse. And meanwhile, the outside world looking at this from Hong Kong for the first time, having access to some of that, they still don't know anything about the Taiping, but they're looking at the Qing thinking, wow, this is the way they're reacting to a rebellion in their own land. Maybe the Taiping are onto something. Maybe they are the good guys, in fact. And so that's what 
that's what came and that's where the world is starting to really sympathize with them because they're saying, hey, look, these guys are Christian. We're Christian. The government is clearly bad. They're killing thousands and thousands of people. Let's side with the Taiping. So the executions in Canton, they were a major turning point in the, the fortunes of Hong Kong. Refugees flooded into the colony, not just the fugitives threatened by the governor, but also like wealthy merchants from South China seeking a more stable place to run their businesses. Hong Kong just boomed as the new arrivals built houses, and that drove up the rent for people that already owned land there. Um, they founded new trading companies, and it just brought a new life to the city. At first it was tough, but they got over it pretty quickly and built the infrastructure and people were okay. The missionaries were super happy about this because it seemed really difficult at first for the missionaries to go up into Canton and find people and teach them, but now Canton was coming to them. So this bloody, brutal crackdown from the Qing government um, only just reinforced the, the idea in their minds that the Taiping, they couldn't be that bad. Now, James Legg, he knew perfectly well that his 33-year-old assistant, Hong Ringan, was the cousin of Hong Xiuquan, the Taiping Heavenly King, but he wasn't nearly as excited about that as Theodore Hamburg had been. James Legg told him that the Taiping were kind of dangerous, potentially. He said they weren't true Christians because all their ideas and doctrines came from Hong Xiuquan, not from an accepted source like you know the Bible or traditional Christian teachings or anything like that. Um, and so there was kind of a thorny issue in this whole thing for all the Christians, which they tended to overlook. But the fact that Hong Xiuquan was saying not just that you know he was a Christian, but that he was actually Jesus's brother, that was kind of weird to people. And James Legg was one of the few people that was willing to say, hey, Hong Rangan, I think your cousin's kind of crazy. I don't think this is right. So maybe you shouldn't do too much of what he says to do. Um, for as much as James Legg was affectionate and loving of Hong Rangan. He was not all that worried about what Hong Rangan's family was doing up in, in China. And he told Hong Rangan, you know, stop thinking about them. Instead, devote your life to Hong Kong, preaching and studying here. And then if things keep going the way they are going, the Qing will fall and all of China will become a Christian nation. And then it'll be safer to go home, but don't go home in the middle of this war you might just end up with a group of crazies anyway. Hong Rangan, for his part, he seemed like he took Legg's advice and the years just passed on and he took on a range of duties while he was in Hong Kong. He would visit prisoners in the jail, he would preach in the hospitals, and he would travel with James Legg. Um, there was also an Anglo-Chinese college that was founded by missionaries and Hong Rangan was hired to teach Chinese history and literature there to Chinese Christians. Um, he also helped James Legg with his translation of the Confucian classics. You can imagine how Hong Xiuquan would have thought about his cousin helping translate this stuff. Um, let's see, what else? He was a master of the Confucian classics because he himself had studied for the civil service exams, by the way. Now, as the civil war up north kind of reached a stalemate, the Taiping stopped rolling on. They lost a bunch of momentum, but they stayed strong. And the Qing was not able to push them back, so stalemate. right? As that was happening, Hong Rangan just continued to work safely and quietly as James Legg's assistant in Hong Kong. He was way out of the reach of the Taiping and out of the reach of the Qing. The Qing would have killed him the second they found him anyway. 
Now, even more significantly for later events, Hongrengan also gained an enormous amount of knowledge about life outside of China while he was in Hong Kong. Um, not as much as, you know, some of the people who had gone and like lived in England or America, but definitely more than any other person in the Taiping movement, he knew about the outside world. So even though it was still technically China, Hong Kong was like this special pocket that was connected to the wider world through the British Empire. Um, schools were run by missionaries, and in their books, they, they translated those to promote the strengths and discoveries of British civilization and European civilization. He learned about Europe. He learned about American ideas on politics, economy, science, medicine, government, administration, even military science. Hong Rangan was learning all this stuff while he was in Hong Kong. Um, he saw the workings of the British colonies. He saw the way that life there was orderly, peaceful, fair, safe. People had rights. It was a glimpse into that world for him. Um, and with this glimpse of society that was far away from anything he had ever known, he started to feel like this was something maybe he could carry back with him to the Taiping. So through all these years, he studied and he preached and he enjoyed his time in Hong Kong. Um, four years, he enjoyed this time. Now, Hong Rengan's popularity went both ways. He was very popular, um, not just with the missionaries, but when they would go out amongst crowds in Hong Kong, and crowds of Chinese people would just swarm him like a, like a rock star. Um, refugees would come and they would talk to him. Now, James Legg, he knew that these people talking to Hong Rangan, they were not just interested in him because he was Hong Rangan. They didn't think he was just popular. They wanted to know about his cousin, Hong Xiuquan. James Legg knew that. He didn't like that. But at the same time, he didn't speak Hakka, so he couldn't necessarily understand what was going on. Um, it turns out that a lot of these people that would... Um, come up and talk to Hong Rangan in the streets. They were asking about his cousin, asking whether he would be willing to go up to Nanjing and join the heavenly kingdom. And if he had some way to help them get up there, other missionaries said that, you know what? Hong Rangan was special. And this is important. If he could just go up there, he could single-handedly be, be the person who could bring true Christianity to China. Because they all said, your cousin's wrong, but he's trying, and maybe you could go up and teach him and correct him. And it was those missionaries who felt that way, who were kind of working behind James Legg's back. They got their way in the end. Um, Hong, Hong Rangan, he disappeared while James Legg was away from home. He went on a home leave back to visit, and it was the spring of 1858. And while he was gone, the other missionaries gave Hong Rangan some money for the trip, and they promised that they would also pay money to his family members who stayed behind in Hong Kong. Um, but they had to keep it secret from James Legg. So before he left, Hong Rangan left a poem. He wrote about it. He wrote about the peace of returning back to his country and the importance of heroes who know no boundaries, who can save the world. Um, people have noted that in this poem that he wrote as a departing gift, he said this time he didn't take any Bibles with him. He didn't take a telescope. He didn't take a steamship to Shanghai or anything like that. He didn't have crowds that were supporting him and seeing him off. Instead, he left his brother there with his poem. He put his brother in charge as James, James Legg's household servant because he knew he would be safe there. 
and then he left alone, secretly, in disguise, to take a journey across China. It would be 700 miles through war-torn country on foot to get up to Nanjing. Um, and he was definitely an enemy of the state, so it was, was a very dangerous proposition. Okay, there's Hongren Gan, part two.